Is this, is this on? Yes, my lord. Good, good. <clears throat> Hello, this is God speaking. Can we dial that down? Yes, my lord. Thanks. Welcome, new arrival to the Eternity Ward. Please take a number and make your way down to the left or the right to the waiting room. All you need is there the refreshments I made just for you. <laughs> I would tell you to steer clear of the apples, they're forbidden, um, and the two snakes. <clears throat> I mean, fools, sorry, that are chewing the fat in the corner, but you probably wouldn't listen anyway. So good luck, I bless you, and on your way. Welcome to the Eternity War, where we flick through old copies of Reader's Digest and chat with our buddies while we wait for an appointment with God. I'm Chris Adams. I'm Nick McKinnon. I was actually flipping through Reader's Digest this morning. Nick, I was doing that. I was was in a waiting room. Not the Eternity Ward. I was elsewhere. At a mechanics, getting my car looked at. And there were Reader's Digest there. Did you look at the laughter is the best medicine section? Yes, I did. Yeah. The jokes were pretty lame, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's the best part of Regis Judges. So. Uh, anyway, so here we are, another episode of the Eternity Ward and another episode with a guest. We have a guest. Could you introduce our guest, please, Nick? Yeah, I can. But before we get to that, Chris, oh, what can. are the issues that Christians care about? Um, the poor? No. Uh, no? Oh. <laughs> Theological debate? No. Don't no. be silly. You're struggling. Let me tell you. Oh, okay. You tell me. I went to the uh, Australian Christian Lobby's website and they told me. So Christians care about homosexuality. Yeah. They care about sex outside of marriage. Yeah. And they care about abortion. Okay. Now, there are some issues that we're going to talk about on a podcast, Chris, that we need to get a guest on for. (laughs) And this issue is one of those. Because we're going to be talking about abortion tonight and we wouldn't want to just have you and I talking about that because... You know, who the hell would want to listen to us talk about that? So we've I don't got want to a guest talk about in. it at all. No, I know you don't. <laughs> See, I told you, Claire. Yeah, so we've got Claire. Oh, actually, you're going to have to make sure I pronounce this correctly, Claire. Um, is it Claire Van Ryan? That's it. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. Yeah, well done. <laughs> so we've got Claire Van Ryan here, but we'll just call her Claire from now on. Claire is a writer, she's a blogger, she's a mum, she's about to be releasing a book-ish thing, (laughs) book slash magazine-y thing. That's right, yeah. And she used to write for The Examiner Launceston. Um, How long did you write there, Claire? Um, It was about 10 years or that, yeah. Yeah, she used to write the faith column in there. Yeah, I mean, I'm seeing Claire on Skype now and I'm, I'm going, I've seen that face before many times. In the paper, yeah. yeah. Yes, you have. Yeah. yeah, but I worked as a journalist while I was there and I, I wrote a column kind of on the side which continued after I became a mum and I wrote it from home, yeah. Lovely. And she's got her own blog called mm. Faith Like a Mushroom. What does that blog look at, Claire? It's a window on life from a Christian perspective, I guess. It's mostly words of encouragement in people's faith journey. Yeah, cool. And you also tell like other people's stories in there as well. Yeah, yeah. Lately I've done a series called Flam Faces, which has just, it's really opened up my blog so that other people can share their own testimonies, mm. which is God speak for story. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And so you also, 
this is the part that comes into focus with our conversation. You're also a communications specialist with Emily's Voice. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about what Emily's mm-hmm. Voice is? Sure. So Emily's Voice is a media organisation. We produce ads that run on television, social media, on billboards, on bus backs, on radio. Um, and these ads, they share the real-life stories of people who have been confronted with a crisis or unwanted pregnancy and what they've done to navigate through that situation. We never use actors. They are real stories and most of them actually, they reveal the hidden joy and um, the stories of hope that come from those situations despite the circumstances because so often circumstances are temporary but life, you know, a new life born is obviously much more prolonged. Cool. Have you heard of Emily's Voice, Chris? No. How long has that been running for? We've been around for about 10 years now. We're stretching our reach, I guess you'd say. Um, yeah. Are you just based in Tasmania? I'm up in Sydney now. Uh, or are you? do you have a bigger reach? Yes, we do have a much bigger reach. So, um, so Emily's Voice campaigns can be seen in Tasmania, Western Australia, in regional Queensland, Hunter Valley of New South Wales, in Newcastle, and we're also expanding to um, Sunshine Coast and Cairns and to other regional areas as well. So, yeah, our footprint is growing by the minute. <laughs> so is there a reason why you focus on those specific geographies? It's to do with contacts, to be honest. We go into a new area usually by invitation. So a, a church or someone with a particular interest in our work will express interest and then we start by doing a survey of the region. So we get an independent researcher to um, survey a sample of about 300 residents and we find out what the base kind of level understanding of um, abortion and um, opinions around abortion are so that in say another five or ten years we can do the same thing and measure how successful our campaigns have been. Yeah cool you mentioned there that like one of your primary contacts in a location might be a church Mm -hmm. is Emily's Voice specifically a Christian organisation? It is not specifically Christian. Our content is not necessarily um, Christian because we believe that our message stands alone. Uh, You don't have to be a Christian to believe that life is valuable. But obviously a lot of our supporters do tend to be Christians because that is ingrained in the Christian teaching. Isn't it, Chris? It is. One thing I want to talk about, how long have you two known each other? Oh. Because I don't know you, so I'm going to ask some questions, Claire, to figure out figure out who you are. So how, yeah. how, how do you know Nick? Well, church, actually. Um, he back doesn't in, go to church anymore. <laughs> but he used to, back in Longford Baptist Church yeah. days, and when his mum yeah. taught me ballet. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. <laughs> and then we also attended the same school. Um, I am a little bit older than uh-huh. Nick, though, so we were separated by a, a year or two. I think you're in the grade above me, but I don't... Yeah, yeah you don't remember me. Is that what you're going to say? <laughs> no, no, no. I was going to say I'm not sure if we're actually different in age, though. I've got a feeling we no, might be the same age. Yeah, I'm about to turn 35. Yeah, same. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I had a feeling we were the same age. I don't know how that worked that you're in the grade above, but... Oh, I skipped prep. I must have just been stupid, so they kept me back in <laughs> Always been the youngest in my year. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So did you grow up in a Christian household, Claire, or did you come to Christianity at some point on your own? Um, I did grow up in a Christian household. I have a long Christian heritage on both sides of my family, actually. So, 
yeah, I moved around um, different denominations and I now attend Store of Hope Christian Church in Launceston. Mm-hmm. And did you go through any particular theological training or anything because you were being a journalist with, you know, writing opinion pieces in relation to religion and so on? Yeah, so... no, I haven't. I haven't. And um, okay, I guess what happened was there was a gentleman who was writing um, a column for the examiner and he'd been writing it for many years and he did have theological backing and he, he did a fantastic job. But a new editor came in and she, she just wanted something different and I just said to her, well, this is what I'll do. You know, I don't have any theological degree. I'll just give you... Mm-hmm a very grassroots kind of understanding of my faith and how it relates to everyday situations. And um, so that's what I did and, and that's what I continue to do. It, what, I, what I write is definitely not theologically driven, <laughs> but it is, yeah, that's um, all right. it's yeah. about being relatable and accessible to, to all people. But I guess my readership would generally be people like me, you know. But when you're writing in a paper... Uh, your readership covers everyone <laughs> that reads that paper. Did you, so that if you're writing an opinion piece, not everyone's going to share your opinion, you know? So did you get a lot of feedback from mm. when you were writing? Yeah, I did. Yep. Yep. I grew very thick skin during that time. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, I use my columns sometimes to comment on topical issues in, that cropped up in the media. So sometimes that could be divisive, but I always sought to express my opinion with love and respect for for all people. But I guess the the thing is that you don't know people's stories, you don't know what um, what their backstory is, and so you just even you know if you write the most loving, <laughs> well intended article, you cannot understand where someone else is coming from when they read it. So um, I guess. All I could really do in those circumstances is do my best to write in a loving and um, compassionate way and then pray for the people who, who read it. So, yeah. Mm. What was your story in, in how you came to be such a passionate advocate for, well, what would be the word? Would it be pro-life or life choices? or what, what's, Why did you become such a passionate advocate to the point where you're writing these blogs and you're working within the, the Emily's Voice program and so on? How did that happen? Yeah, sure. That's a good question. Um, the simplest way to answer it is to say that God put it in my heart because I, I actually don't, mm-hmm. I don't have like a turning point. I can't, I can't go back and go, that is when my passion for this began. So I believe that God put it in my heart. And over time, he has given me different experiences that have actually built on that. So I've had, you know, people near and dear to me who have chosen to end their pregnancy to take the life of their baby Um, and I've journeyed with them through that really difficult decision and you know the the trauma um, after the procedure I've had two miscarriages myself I mean obviously it's it's very different to abortion but but it still involves life and the life of a child um, tragically taken without you having known them but knowing that they existed and that you carried them that you um Mm. were involved in their conception and and also knowing that that God loves them. So that has really helped me understand the value of life and helped me to be able to speak into it. And then I think also just being interested in other people's stories and having that desire to be a vessel in the sharing of those stories has made me passionate about that. I love to be able to be the, the pen, I guess, 
well, so that another person who perhaps isn't as brightly equipped can actually share their story. Mm. And you're a mum now to how many children? Two. I have what age? a boy and a girl. Adelaide is uh, nearly four and Roman is seven. And I have, I have Misco two babies in between. Okay. Yeah. So they are waiting for me in heaven. Yeah. <laughs> so you believe that your miscarriages that you've had will be in heaven? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I believe that wholeheartedly. Is that what you would also believe about abortions, that if people have had abortions, then those uh, humans will be in heaven as well? Yeah, I do, because I don't see them as being that different in as much as their personhood has been established. The only difference is the way they have died. Um, Mm. So I do believe that they are waiting for us in heaven. And um, I mean... You only need to look at a few verses in the Bible that I quote often. Can I read to you Psalm um, 139, verses 13 to 16? It'll be very familiar to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And there are other verses like that. Jeremiah 1 verse 5 is another one that just kind of affirm that God knows us before we are known by anyone. You know, we don't even need to be known by anyone at all to have existed. And if God knows us, then won't he welcome us into heaven? Yeah. And I guess the next question you might ask is, well, do children go to heaven? And then you can go down the track of, um, of looking at the age of accountability, you know, that age when we have understanding to be able to make the choice for ourselves, whether we believe or whether we don't believe. And I think that obviously children unborn would fall into that before that age of, uh, age of accountability kind of gap. Yeah. Without getting no, too my next, technical. <laughs> that wasn't my next question. That was a good question. Okay. That's probably why I didn't think of it. Can I just say that that verse is just a beautiful piece of literature, at, at the very least. It's poetry, isn't it's, it? Oh, oh, it's amazing. Yeah. But, yeah, what were you going to say, Nick? Yeah, well, so my question is, if these babies are all in heaven, isn't that a good thing? Like, isn't heaven a good place to be? And why would we be not wanting these babies to go straight to heaven. That's brilliant. If there's a heaven, (laughs) I want to go there straight away. This earth is not heaven. No, it's not. Yeah, I think that heaven, it must be a beautiful place for the fact that there will be so many children there. If you think of the fact that there are 80,000 babies aborted in Australia every year, and that's a conservative figure, I would say, Mm. then you just think how many babies there must be in heaven. So... Yeah, certainly um, it it is a good place (laughs) to be. But what does that mean for us who have been given the responsibility to look after the the vulnerable and those in our our community who can't speak for themselves? What does that mean for us if we cannot stand up for them? And, you know, Jesus said to us that that is our place. We need to be doing that. In what sense? What did he say? Well, regarding children, he said, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. Yeah. Um, that's yep. that's one of many many passages, many pieces of scripture where he 
um, references children and the vulnerable and the needy in society who, who we should stand up for and just to speak up for and um, provide for and nurture. And there's nothing more vulnerable than an embryo, I wouldn't imagine. So Absolutely, yeah. And so does human life begin at conception? Well, that's the big question, isn't it? I believe it does, yes. I believe human life begins at conception. Do you, Nick? No, I don't. That's pretty easy. Um, but so, so there's a soul attached to that single cell that gets implanted in the woman's uterus. Yes, I believe so. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I mean, we've just read that passage of scripture that says that God has ordained all our days. He knows them before they've happened. So, you know, if we're to believe that, then that cell is not just a cell. It is, it is a soul that God has already created. He's already assigned its days. And uh, I don't know, you know, who this person is going to become, what they're going to achieve, what, what family they're going to make, where they're going to live. All of that is already, already sorted. So what about before that when it's a sperm? It doesn't have a soul at that point, I presume? Because then uh, you'd be talking about like billions of souls dying all the time. <laughs> No, I wouldn't say that a sperm has a soul. But once it gets inside the egg, it does. I think that at conception, life begins, personhood is established, and a soul is created. Yeah, okay. What do you think, Chris? Because you're a Christian too. Mm. Oh, I've been struggling with this for a long time, trying to figure it out. Uh, like I, I was even doing some research into it. I, there was one Catholic lady I read today talking about Oh, I've always believed that, you know, a, a child had a soul right from conception, but then I had twins and I thought, well, twins start off as the one cell, you know, so <laughs> then, and, and then at some point in the process or when it's called, it's called a zygote at that stage, you know, cause it's just this ball of cells at some point they do split, you know, and so like, well, how does that work? Does the soul split in two? But I, then I'm also like, half a soul then each. if... Well, we know that's not, you know, if you believe in a soul, then you don't believe that that's the case. And I was sort of like going, well, if God's outside of time and God knows, you know, everything was preordained, then God can provide the souls that are required from the start. You know, I'm cool with that. But it was like, you know, and even conjoined twins or something. Do they have two souls or one soul? You know, and you'd say they'd have two. But that was, that was just interesting stuff. But I've been struggling with trying to figure out when does a soul enter and, you know, like looking back through in Christianity and, and religions and philosophers and all through the ages, there's all sorts of different time periods they put on it, you know, like it was 40 days for a male and 90 days for a female in one and then there's... What was their reason just, for having different oh. amount of days for male and female? I, I really don't don't know, but um, <laughs> I, this is where the big conjecture is, is when does a soul enter a human being? When does it become a person? Is it from conception? Is it when there is a brain, you know, because if you're talking about from conception, then there is something alive at that point. There is life. But is that, do you consider that a human being? It's of a human being. But so, there's life in the sperm. Yeah. So, I mean, even St. Thomas of Aquinas or something used to say that, like, human beings are made up of a vegetative soul and then there's an animal soul and then on top of that there's a rational soul. And so all sort of life has this sort of different soul qualities there's this hierarchy and and so we'd start off as a vegetative soul and and then layer upon layer builds upon that at different points in time 
I don't know what to think, and this is sort of why I don't want to talk about it because I, I don't know I don't know what the answer is, and I don't know how you find out the answer. Like we've had a bit of a discussion before about this, Nick, and it seems fairly easy to you because you seem to be when the life can experience pain. That's your that seems to be your cutoff point. Is that right? That's pretty close to my point. Yeah, yeah. If you can't feel pain, then who the hell cares? Unless there's a soul, of course. Science says that basically. 24 to 26 weeks um, is when uh, embryos first able to feel pain. And a lot of, there's a lot of like US states and stuff, which cut it off at 20 weeks because they sort of established that as a, as a time period. Yeah. But for defining when a soul enters, I, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you figure it out. Yeah, well, you, you either have to work out when a soul comes in or you mm. just have to say, I have no idea. And so we'll go from conception just to be safe. Well, that's sort of where I have fallen at times, yeah, because I can't answer it, so that seems to be the place to fall back to. But then, so you think that abortion up... should be illegal? Is that what you're saying? No, I don't. That's you're, that's the question I got for you, Chris, because it, oh, it doesn't but make it's sense. The in question my head, I don't want to answer. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I've got to do all sorts of um, moral gymnastics. And... Can I? Can I just yeah. butt in? Because <laughs> you yes, you please. said you said before that um that a baby doesn't experience pain until 22 weeks, was it? 24 to 26 was what I, I read up on. Okay, well, I'd be interested to know what research that is because my research says that the child has a beating heart at 22 days after conception. So yep. often that's before the woman is actually even aware she's pregnant. So by yes. 30 days, the baby has a brain and... Um, its arms are starting to bud and legs and it's multiplied in size by 10,000 times. And then at three months, all the baby's organs are formed and for the remaining six months, actually nothing new develops. The baby just grows in size and maturation. And then so Surgeon Robert Sheeran says that it's actually as early as eight to ten weeks after conception and definitely by 13 and a half uh, weeks that the unborn experience organic pain first in their mouth at eight weeks and then in their hands at 10 weeks then their face arms and legs at 11 weeks so and then by 13 and a half weeks um, they respond to pain all throughout their nervous system so I think it's much earlier than we would think and certainly to, kn- to know too that the heart is beating at such an early stage um, I think also confirms further that personhood is, well, life is established very early on. So the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists say that babies lack uh, connections and structures mm. that enable it to feel pain until at least 24 weeks of gestation. Because you need pain receptors and then you need the nerves and that connect to the spinal cord, which can then, and then you need the, the cortex of the brain to be able to decipher that. So that, yeah, the science podcast that I listened to talking about it was suggesting 24 to 20, like the, before that there would be reflex action. Like if you had to perform some sort of operation and, you know, you had to put a needle in there, the baby, if you put a needle in the arm, then it will move the arm out of, out of reflex. But, but they were suggesting that it couldn't feel pain at that point. If you use pain as a reason for discounting life though, I mean, yeah, you know, there are people outside the womb who live um, with conditions where they don't feel pain. Um, yeah. Are they less of a person because of that? I mean, it, when we start putting no. these, um, 
when we start putting these parameters around what life is, then it, it's, it's dangerous territory. It's the same with children with Down syndrome are being aborted at huge, like astronomical rates. In some countries, there are no children being born with Down syndrome anymore because they are all terminated. Yeah, you're saying that it's very dangerous for us to make these leaps and these, yeah, yeah absolutely, exactly. so, very dangerous. So when we We're say, talking about, yeah. When we say, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm choosing not to have this baby because it has Down syndrome. What does that say to our society that is trying to uphold mm. this anti-discrimination around people with disability? When we're happy to, to kill them in the womb, but when they are living and breathing outside the womb, when they're in eyesight, then we must treat them, and, and rightfully so, as human beings. <laughs> so it, it's just these paradoxes. And, you know, there, yeah. there are other conditions and, you know, even to gender selection abortion or aborting babies with cleft palate or you know, with, with countless different medical conditions. And I might add that the med medical professionals frequently get it wrong. Babies are aborted for conditions that they apparently have and are often born completely fine. Um, we recently encountered one story of a lady whose baby little girl was diagnosed in utero with a fatal neural tube de defect. So she was told by the doctors they told her they were like 98% certain that their baby would either be born dead or would die a few hours after birth. And they suggested she, she have an abortion. And uh, they refused. They chose to carry through with the pregnancy irrespective of the diagnosis. And their baby was born completely healthy. Their baby had nothing wrong with it, absolutely nothing wrong with it. I mean, how often does that happen and we don't hear about it? 2% of the time, I reckon, given that it was 98% probability that it would happen. Uh, sorry, I've, you lost me. <laughs> well, you said that the doctors told them that it was a 98% probability that the baby would die or die straight after birth. So then 2% of the time, it won't happen. Um, yeah, but what I mean is um, how, how often do people actually take the advice of the medical professionals and abort their child? only to find that their baby was actually healthy. I mean, in reality, would they have found out that their baby was actually healthy? I don't know. Would the medical professionals have actually done testing on the deceased baby after it had been aborted to check if it actually had the condition they aborted it because of? We don't know. I would say not. I would say they wouldn't do that testing. Sometimes I think we, put, we assign too much perhaps responsibility to the medical profession and we don't give enough to God. <laughs> I think that, um, yeah, God works in mysterious ways and that sometimes the medical profession plays God and we don't give enough space to allow God to work his miracles. I mean, life is a miracle and he has created our bodies to accommodate the development of life and sometimes our bodies actually do have this capacity to heal itself, to heal the, the life growing within. When we interrupt that, then who knows what we're playing with, you know? When we interrupt, then we take away the opportunity for something beautiful to happen. I guess I just wanted to say before, like you were talking about it, Claire, that it was dangerous for us to try and make these 
judgments around whether you know to do with pain or to do with this week here or that week there or where, where do we draw this arbitrary line because I, I was looking and you know like the stats were saying that that 99% of abortions do happen before 24 to 26 weeks when the medical profession says that they're able to feel pain the thing that I found staggering was so you're saying what was it 80,000 a year in Australia and and I found 45 million abortions a year worldwide and the top uh, reasons that human beings die around the world, you know, heart disease is number one, and I think car accidents was at number two or three or whatever. But if, well, if you put all of the top ten things that are actually listed as as causes of human death altogether, they still actually don't amount to the mm. amount of deaths caused caused by abortion. So I'm like going, if if a soul is there from conception, if this should be counted as a human person then it's really serious that we've got 45 million a year mm. human beings being aborted. And so the, that's the question for me is trying to figure out the the if. Uh, yeah, I don't have a clear answer to that. So I'm going to keep listening. So I mm. yeah, I don't know. Nick, have you got another question? I don't have a question right now. Yeah, well, so <laughs> if a soul does get implanted at conception, then is it ever justifiable to have an abortion? Well, is it ever justifiable to take a life? No. Well, except for euthanasia, which I guess you probably aren't in favour of either. <laughs> yeah, let's not go there. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Just one topic at a time, right? <laughs> so no other than euthanasia, I say. What about you, Chris? Well, I mean, the obvious question that I guess you would get, Claire, and, you know, so this is where I... Um, okay, so I considered myself pro-choice for a long time because when it comes to situations of someone being raped or of incest or of the mother you know it's 98 percent clear that the mother's going to die you know in the process of childbirth or something then for me I'm like going you need to allow that person who's in that situation the choice and so I so I think what happens is a lot of people fall, you know, into that category is they're like going, well, that's just obvious. That should be the person's choice. But that's actually quite a small minority of the abortions that do happen is any any of those categories. And so then, you know, because it becomes a political issue and, you know, then we've got pro-life and pro-choice and, and people just fall into one camp or the other, whereas I think it's much more complicated than that, which mm. is why it scares me. Yeah. Um, but... So so I'm like, for me, I'm definitely pro-choice in those situations. And I guess that would be the thing that would get thrown at you a lot is, well, what about someone who's been raped? Mm. I mean, what would your response be to that? Well, yeah, yeah as you said, um, it's a very small amount of cases where abortion is for the reason of rape. Less than 1% of abortions are performed because the mm -hmm. woman has been um, the victim of sexual assault. I guess it comes down to... This rape is a horrific violation of women and men, mm. but, you know, we're talking about um, instances of women. Mm -hmm. However, is it okay then to perpetrate another um, violent act against the child? Rape is not the fault of the child. The guilty should be punished, mm. not the child, not the innocent child who has been conceived as a result. And that would be my response. So it, it in no way um, minimises or, you know, trivialises the shame and the pain that um, is experienced by the victims, but to destroy an innocent as a result of, of another violent act 
it doesn't, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. Mm. But a lot of people would say it's the lesser of two evils potentially, you know, because then you're going to say that, well, what about the other innocent in this, the person who, who was raped? And so then you're going to impose on them that they have to carry this child and then they have to, to raise this child and and that just that changes their life. They've already, their life's already been changed forever and then it changes their life forever again. And I, I find it – and I think there are people who can choose to do that, choose to go through that, and, and they're amazing people. But I, I think to say that someone shouldn't have that choice of being able to abort a child in that situation, I, well, I couldn't I guess tell it, someone that. I guess it. Yeah. I guess what you're what you're saying, you're talking about body autonomy, mm. and I guess it comes down to whether you whether you do actually believe that that there is life within the womb or not. Because if you believe there is life within the womb, then that life is separate from the life carrying the child. And so for you to say, well, that woman was raped, this violent act was undertaken against her, that's okay then for her to undertake another violent act against another autonomous body. Is that okay? Another aspect um, to consider is, is it actually a healthy thing for a woman who has been raped to follow through with an abortion, considering the emotional trauma that abortion often has on a woman after going through with that procedure. And um, uh, there was one study of 192 women who conceived as a result of sexual assault and 70% of those women continued their pregnancies. Of those 70% who continued the pregnancy, not one regretted the decision. So no one regretted having their baby. No one regretted giving birth to this life and you know giving being given the opportunity to love this new life however 78% of the women who chose abortion regretted their choice something to think about mm. it's a tough one isn't it it's all tough <laughs> yeah. it's it, it is, is tough and i mean um, if if i you know if your wife or partner was raped what would you do yeah <laughs> yeah for me, it's like you don't, it doesn't matter where you fall on, you know, whichever side you fall on of different types of the argument. For me, it all comes back to what's at stake here is the dignity of the human person. And I guess it's it's both the born person and the unborn person that we're talking Absolutely. about. The dignity of the woman as well as, as the unborn child. The dignity of families as well and of community because um, abortion doesn't affect just one person. It has a knock-on effect. Um, you know, it affects the dad as well. I've spoken to um, the partners of women who have had an abortion and I'm talking like 20, 30 years later and they carry with them, with them this sense of shame that they allowed her or that they pressured her or, you know, they drove her to the clinic and, and they allowed her to go through that without, without their support. Um, I have witnessed testimonies of abortionists who have carried that trauma with them where, where they've kind of come to a point of realisation that what they're doing is is not harmless. It's not harmless to the unborn and it's not harmless mm. to women. It's not harmless to community or, or the, you know, larger society. And then also, you know, all the, all the medical professionals, the nurses, the receptionist, all those people who play a role in the chain of a woman deciding to have an abortion, her GP 
um, her friends, all those people, they are all impacted by the decision to take a life because to take a life is a big deal. It's Mm. a big impacting thing. Uh, That's why at Emily's Voice our position is to love, to support and to honour and respect women and to help reframe the, the discussion around life in our culture. You know, we want um, our community to start to think about abortion in a, in a different way um, so that eventually it, it becomes something that, that is unnecessary, it's unreasonable and it's just unthinkable. That's where we'd like to see our society arrive at. And as someone who has quite obviously never worked for Emily's Voice, like you can get an idea in your head of what a pro-life campaign can look like. But I remember like there was a controversy a few years back, probably still continues, Claire, I don't know, about some advertisements that weren't being aired on television because, I don't know, if someone didn't like them or something and they were Emily's voice ads. And I remember just hearing this story, not having seen the ads, but hearing the story and going, oh, yeah, they're they're probably, you know, pressuring, making women feel bad about who have had abortions. But then I went and actually watched the ads and they're just, they're just the most loving, caring ads that I've ever seen in my life and I couldn't believe that they'd been taken off air. Like I think Channel 10 refused to air them or something like that. Yeah, so now we have to have the kind of droning political authorisation at the end of our ads as a result right. of one complaint to ACMA, the Australian Communications and Media Authority, from memory. So, yeah, as a result, we have to have that little droney, um, fast-paced gibberish at the end of our ads to let everyone know that it's, you know, written and authorised by Paul O'Rourke of um, Emily's Voice. I mean, it's unfortunate because I don't believe that our ads are in any way political. They are the real stories of real people. And since when is that offensive? Mm. I'll give you an example. Um, our latest ad features Jasmine. She's a mum already to three children I believe when she falls pregnant and there's a large gap and it's a real shock and um, so the ad just shows her just kind of you know dealing with the horrible nausea of you know that first trimester and just going what on earth you know they're established in their careers everything's going well and then bang a newborn and I mean having a newborn in your home it's quite a big responsibility and your life is thrown off kilter However, they embraced it, they gave birth to a beautiful little boy and in their words, life couldn't be better, you know? I mean, life is that. Life is a whole heap of unexpected circumstances that we navigate through, right? And when we do, they develop our character, they um, enrich us and make our life more joyful and beautiful. And I think that that's, that's kind of at the core of a lot of our ads uh, are stories of real people who, despite um, testing circumstances, have overcome and they have a beautiful new life to show for it as well. Mm. Yeah, a couple of things. Like you're talking about it's not harmless. It's harmful to a lot of people. And uh, and one thing that I, you know, is a core to, to my ethics and morality and values and so on is is harm minimisation. You know, those those two words together also open up the possibility of me, you know, accepting pro-choice because even, you know, you were talking about people overcoming these testing circumstances, but I think we have to take those testing circumstances, the reasons why, why women are, you know, choosing to have abortions. We need to take them seriously. And, and so that's, 
that's also why I the thing that often frustrates me about you get this stereotypical picture of a, of a pro-life person standing outside a clinic with a sign and yelling and screaming at people and threatening to hurt people and that's not for me a christian response i'm like if you're wanting to see less abortions you know then i really like how you started off by talking that you you know you've been alongside people who have been through that and so for me it's like what do you do to mitigate these testing circumstances because that's that's all i want to do i don't want to take people's choices away from them but i do want to try and make a difference to people's lives where they feel like they can, you know, have the child. They don't feel like they financially can't do it or that they're... I mean, a lot of reasons is there's this massive fear of being a single mother um, or they've got a bad partner or just a really unsupportive partner or someone who abuses them. You know, there's a fear for a lot of people and some like... Yep. Those things are real. They're Absolutely. real, you know. Yeah, but they're also circumstantial. Yeah, they are. Yeah. yeah. And so a Christian response is how do you get alongside those people what do you do when someone has an unplanned and unwanted pregnancy and, and maybe the child, it's not going to be cared for, it's not going to be loved? It's That's a worry. Like I, I work with young people who tell me horrific stories of mum looks at them in the face and says, you are a mistake, you're never meant to be here. Every time I see you, I wish you were dead, you know. But that person is a real person mm. as well. And, and so, yeah. To say to say that anyone was a mistake, I mean, half the surely half of us were all unplanned, you know. But, yeah. <laughs> but but we're still we're still loved, you know. Yeah. So. What you're saying, give people real choices. That's what we need to do. Give them the full spectrum of choice. You know, the pro-choice lobby they just want the choice of abortion being front and center. But what we really need to do is to educate people well on the truth of abortion. Mm. What actually happens in an abortion procedure? What are the side effects? And not only um, physical, but emotional and mental. You know, what are the other options? The other options are not discussed often enough. Adoption, for example. Why isn't adoption offered more freely? Support. The best help that we can be to a person who is facing an unplanned pregnancy or a crisis pregnancy is to stand in the gap, to just be there, to be ready to attend all those prenatal appointments, to go to the, you know, the scans and to share the joy, to celebrate, to throw a baby shower, to throw money at them if they need it. I mean, we're talking about life, so we, we should be, you know, digging into our wallets and, you know, paying for, you know, a pram or a change table or, you know, newborn clothes. Yeah, we, we just need to stand in the gap. If, the, if there's an absent partner, then, yeah, to just be around and be available and to cook meals, you know, all really, really practical things that any one of us could do um, if we just have our eyes open to the need and are willing to put feet to our faith, basically. Hmm. So is that what Emily's voice is? You you said you're trying to change the the conversation around abortion, so it becomes less this this battle between people on political spectrums or between a, a theological position and a legalistic position. You're wanting to because I, I like that idea of standing in that middle ground. I don't know. Do you want to do you want to see laws changed as well? Is that one thing? Like Ireland at the moment is in two weeks' time they're going to have a vote. At the moment, it's not legal in Ireland and they're having a vote. And would you like to see Australia change its laws? 
or alter its laws? Well, abortion is legal in most states in Australia anyway. Um, no, I, do, I don't think that, that abortion should be legal, but, but are you asking me personally or because you started by asking me about Emily's voice? Sorry. So as an organisation, Emily's Voice exists to change culture at a grassroots kind of level. We will sometimes speak into the political arena, but um, as a general general rule, we just want to educate and inform people so that they understand that this issue is is real, that it affects women, and it it is affecting our culture too. It's a poison that is not being identified for what it is. And to also equip others. So, you know, we have lots of supporters. We have people who are sympathetic to our cause. So they are people who are on the ground and interfacing with people every day who just might be one of these people who um, finds out tomorrow that they they are pregnant and they don't want that baby. So they can be that person who who stands in the gap and says, look, um, I'm going to be your support person. I'm going to carry through this pregnancy with you. I'm going to research adoption so that you can adopt your baby once it's born because that seems to be the best choice for you, whatever it is, so that people can start to be the the change within their culture, within their community and and so forth around them. Um, That's where we are at anyway. Yeah. If you could have the way the conversation is, is held in Australia around abortion changed I mean what would your vision of that conversation look like I think it would be a conversation that spoke more about motherhood earlier about parenthood earlier Um, I think there's a large focus on career very early on and very little discussion about the choice to actually raise a family early in life and I think that when when young people face it it's more of a shock than it could be I think there needs to be more discussion, you know, at a school level around what your real choices are if you unexpectedly fall pregnant and what the joys are of parenthood and how parenthood, it expands and enriches us and it can be done alongside all the other aspirations that we have in life. It doesn't mean that life stops, that life ends or rather it doesn't mean your career aspirations end. How do you convince the Knicks of the world who don't... I think that's where the divide who is. Who don't have a problem. Yeah. I think this really is a religious and secular issue because if you believe that humans are special and have a soul and God created them uniquely differently to everything else, then I don't know how the hell you get away from... Yeah, as soon as that thing is on its path to being a human... Like, how do you convince yourself that abortion is in any way acceptable, regardless of whether it's rape or anything else, because you're killing something made in the image of God? It doesn't make any sense to me. But if you're not a Christian, uh, yeah, it, it should just be entirely that, like, harm minimization, what you're talking about, Chris, that, that you've got to weigh up the differences between, you know, can the baby feel any pain? If so, well, that matters. That really matters. Um, and you have to weigh that up with um, what the mother and father see as the change it's going to have in their lifestyle. Like you were talking before, Claire, about how it, it doesn't have to change your lifestyle. I think it, it changes it dramatically. I mean, I've, I've got two kids. I love my kids to death, um, but they mm. are a pain in the ass at times and it, it makes <laughs> life difficult in ways you cannot fathom. Um, but Absolutely. I would not change it but for the world. But it doesn't have to change the trajectory of your aspirations and dreams. It, it probably yeah, I disagree with that line. dramatically. 
it, it will change the timeline and the the way you navigate to getting there, but it doesn't mean that you can't get there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think okay, it uh, can mean you I'll, can't get there. And so, like, that's why we have a gender wage gap because women fall pregnant and it changes how much money you can earn over the course of your life. It'll change, you know, what jobs you can get over the course of your lifetime. It changes loads of things. But I love my two kids. Also... I don't work. I gave up my job for my kids. I love my kids to death. I wouldn't change it for the world. It, but it does change your life. But it's worth yeah, it. Yeah, it changes your life. But there, are, but it can also change your life in good ways yeah, in a career, career perspective as well. Um, mm. I would say I'm a, I'm a much more... Um, I don't know. I, I am much more able to multitask, for example, in the workplace. And I'd love to tell you a story. Actually, this might even be a great way to end. There's mm-hmm. there's a, lo- a local girl, Stacey, who we found out about at one of our Emily's Voice dinners. And she fell pregnant unexpectedly. She was 16 and she was living in a women's shelter. She was estranged from her mum. She dropped out of school. So she fell pregnant And she watched one of our ads on television. It was the ad featuring Madeline, who actually had had an abortion and was sharing her grief, the sorry that she lives with, um, knowing that her baby, that she chose to end its life. So Stacey watched this ad and then she also received um, one of those little feet pins. I don't know if you've seen them, but, um, you know, little lapel pin, little feet at um, 10 weeks. She received those in the mail and as a result... She chose to keep her baby. Now, that decision to to keep her baby, his name is Oliver, resulted in her reuniting with her mum. So she moved back in with her mum and her mum was able to support her through Oliver's uh, pregnancy and his birth. She went back to school and she started studying hard because she suddenly had this impetus. Um, She had a reason to get good marks because she wanted to be able to one day, you know, set herself up so she could get a better job, so that she could support herself and her child. So she she was back in school. She cleaned herself up so she wasn't on drugs anymore. Um, She stopped taking drugs and and eventually she she also reunited, sorry, I think think with Oliver's dad, I may be wrong, but, um, and was able to establish herself in her own unit. So all these things might not have actually happened if it wasn't for her falling pregnant. So do you see how, how a hard thing, you know, falling pregnant unexpectedly can be the catalyst for really amazing, great, meaningful change in a person's life? And when we just say, look, just have an abortion, get rid of it, you know, then your life will be back to normal. Yeah, I think that we're robbing women. And you're also minimising the psychological impact that having an abortion can have on a, on a woman. Yeah, that's right. And so yeah. her, ba- her baby, having a baby, was healing for her. It yep. healed her in many, many ways. Mm. Yeah. Well, we better leave it there, Claire, because we've already gone over the time limit you gave us by about 15 minutes. So we're terrible hosts. We apologise. You've been very generous with your time. Um, <laughs> thank you for joining us on the Eternity Ward. I would want to really encourage people to go and have a look at the Emily's Voice webpage and have a look at some of the ads especially because... You'll look at them and you just go, oh, what, what are people complaining about? They're beautiful ads. And, like, you will learn stuff about the process, like I certainly did when I watched them. So are there any other places where people can keep in touch with both you personally and also Emily's Voice? Yeah, well, Emily's, Emily's Voice is our supporter page 
And our sister page, you might say, is not born yet, which is for people who do find themselves in those situations of unplanned or crisis pregnancy. So both of those sites have lots of information um, about what we do, but also information for people who want to know about, you know, what are the facts of abortion, what are the risks and what, what are the precise um, procedures that people undergo? Um, where can I get help? Where are all the pregnancy support services in, in your area? All that kind of information is on the Not Born Yet website as well as the ads and um, real stories of people probably just like you. <laughs> so that's all on there. And if you want to connect with me, um, you're welcome to jump onto my blog, which is faithlikeamushroom.com. And what's the book, the book slash magazine that's coming out soon? Um, that's called Flam. So it's it's based on the same um, blog, Faith Like a Mushroom, and it is right. a collation of of my work, of my articles, their vignettes that um, double as devotional style reads that prompt people into deeper relationship with God. I'm hoping that readers will find encouragement there too. And um, there's also a handful of real stories of local people as well who um, have shared about their journey with Jesus. Cool. Thank you, Claire. You're very for welcome. For coming on the Eternity Award. Thank you yeah. for inviting me. It has been a pleasure. Beautiful. <laughs> what, are you, are you going to say goodbye as well then, Nick? Oh, mate, yeah, goodbye. I've not done that. <laughs> Au revoir. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. See you again soon. God here again. Are you shaking your head incredulously or nodding in approval? Well, if you got something out of this episode, you could really help those poor idiots by contributing to or supporting the Eternity Ward. You can leave reviews on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. You can share it on social media or discuss it in your blog, podcast or fellowship group. Subscribe, like, nod your head, raise your fist, send a hallelujah. I don't know, but don't send a prayer because I'm kind of busy right now. Join the discussion in the comment section, ask questions and do come back and join us again here on the Eternity Ward. Thank you.